I'm Grant, an engineering and technology leader who will share the secrets of IT with you. Listen up, because we're about to get into it. Hey everybody, Happy New Year! So I'm going to take a few moments here at the start to talk about next year. I hope your 2023 is off to a great start. Mine has personally been better. My company just announced layoffs just like so many other companies in the tech industry, but so far I'm personally not impacted, but I know a lot of people who are. So if you are, please connect with me on LinkedIn and I'd be happy to do what I can to help you find a new career. Whether you are a developer or a product owner or a scrum master, or if you're a leader or you're looking to get into executive leadership, any of those things are on the table. I've got a lot of connections. I'd be happy to talk with you more about that. Also, if you just need somebody to listen to you, I got that skill too. So that's not off the table. So try not to let it shake your confidence. If you have been laid off, it's probably not because you were a poor performer. So take a few days, absorb the information that you just received and get your head on straight, relax and prepare because the next job that you have is to treat the job search like a full-time job in itself. Brush up on your skills, start connecting with people on LinkedIn, networking, and start looking at LinkedIn jobs and other career websites to see what is available at the moment. The job search can take a long time or a short period of time. It depends on what's available in the market. So Go out there, start looking, and I hope you will find something that you're happy with for the start of 2023. Now, shifting gears, I usually start each year, not with a New Year's resolution, but with a theme for the year. So I try and take these themes forward each year so that I become a little better in some way that I want to become with each passing year. I've been doing this since 2016, and I feel like I've made some really good progress at becoming the type of person I want to be. I still have a very long way to go, as we all do. This is a lifelong journey, but I wanted to share my journey with you for a little bit and kind of give you an idea of what I'm talking about. As I go through these examples, I'm going to try and be just direct and vulnerable with you. Uh, So don't consider this a way of me talking up or boasting about my accomplishments. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to be real and give you an example of things that I've done so that you can introspect for yourself and decide what direction do you want to develop. And then you can set themes for yourself and then work through those year over year to become the kind of person you also want to become. So as I mentioned, I started this in 2016. That's when I had just gone into management and I really wanted to grow that skill set. I was excited and, and all that stuff. So I set the theme for myself that year of seeking out opportunities to become uncomfortable. I don't personally believe that we can grow when we're in a comfortable place, so I started throwing myself into the fire in as many different ways as I could. I believe management is about being front and center, being a leader. So I know leadership and management are two different skill sets, but in my approach, they're very much combined. So I started trying to be out in front of the team as much as I could, which made me uncomfortable having come from a software developer background. I'm an introvert by nature, and so this really pushed me and tested me to try out new things. At the same time, I decided to join a ministry at church called Stephen Ministry because I thought it would be a challenging one to be a part of. That ministry is all about providing one-to-one care to people who are going through a tough time in life. Whether they've lost a job, they've had a divorce, they've lost a loved one, or they've gone through a traumatic injury, it's all of those things that you don't want to experience in life all wrapped up into having a person come provide one-to-one care for you going through that experience. So the variety of, of situations that you are exposed to is very wide-ranging. And at this point, as of today, I've done that for seven years. So I've gotten quite good at handling touchy situations, which also come up in the workplace. 
I've had plenty of people on my teams at work go through divorces or have job losses or go through injuries. And so the skills that I learned in Stephen ministry have been applicable to me on the job as well. So that was a very great skill set to get under control and to learn. So I owe all of that experience to my theme for the year in 2016. The next year, I wanted to become a better leader. I felt I had most of the management fundamentals down. And so that next year, I focused on leadership development. And that's when I decided to further my education on strategic leadership in particular. I also went to tons of different leadership development conferences and focused on how I could build a better culture and team experience at work for the employees on my team. So I was able to accomplish those things in 2017 because the prior year I had put myself out of my comfort zone and kind of learned the skill set of how to teach myself to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations. That helped me go to all those different leadership development conferences and start figuring out how to be a solid leader at work. Next, in 2018, I wanted to learn how to be more effective at influencing others. I read a ton of books on the subject. I learned methods of generating small talk and tried to practice these skills on the job and off the job. Five years later, people actually noticed that I'm pretty skilled in this area. And it wasn't by accident. It's sort of like when you see a great piece of art. The person that made that piece of art isn't just naturally gifted. It took refinement of their craft to get to that point. So I'm going to skip over other years here. I think you get my point by now. So I think you should personally set a goal for yourself too. set a theme. It's only in hindsight when I look at my Google Doc of goals over the years that I see just how much progress I've made. And I'm very happy with what I've accomplished in the past seven years. Keeping track of this all has been really good to reflect back on each year. And it's really fun too. So I got seven years that I get to look back on, and we all know that New Year's resolutions fall flat about mid-January. So try a theme for yourself this time for the full year, write it down somewhere you can revisit, and then next year when you roll into January, see if you need to roll that, that theme for the year forward. Did you make enough progress on it that you can start with a new theme, or should you revisit the same one over again? It's okay. Your journey is your journey. It'll take as much time as it takes. I try and approach these things with discipline and rigor. That's kind of like my thing in life. I got no chill is what my wife says. So I don't know what your uh, timeline is going to be like, but whatever it is, that's okay. Uh, I would suggest you start with a theme and just see how that goes this year. And now we're going to do a hard transition into today's topic, which is about Okta. If you're not into information security, then you may not know exactly what Okta is. And that's okay, but it was hacked recently or breached rather. So it's another good case study to review since we just reviewed the Uber hack a few months ago. I've been breaking my rule about not becoming a current events podcast, and this is not an InfoSec podcast either, but yeah, that's okay. After all, breaches and hacks are very on topic in the computer and software engineering world, and I happen to run this show, so I'm going to do topics that I think are interesting. So Okta. Okta claims to connect any person with any application on any device. In other words... If you log into an app on one device, and then Okta reduces the friction of using that application and its associated applications on other devices as well. For example, you don't want to log into Slack on your PC, chat with some people, and then grab a lunch, and you look at Slack on your phone, and then have to log in again, which would also happen to log you out of your PC because you're no longer on that device. So that's the annoying friction that I'm talking about. It's an enterprise-grade identity management service. With Okta, your IT department can manage any employee's access to any application or device. 
Okta runs in the cloud on a uh, <clears throat> secure, reliable, extensively audited platform, which integrates deeply with on-premises applications, directories, and identity management systems. The Okta solution came about because people are more mobile these days. They use many devices, and the number of applications that need to be managed has grown exponentially. Does this sound like a sponsored episode yet? It's not, but if you're listening, Okta, I'm open to that, and I did pull this description right from your website. So I also personally have hands-on experience with Okta, so I can at least vouch that what they're saying is correct in my experience. They are not just talking up their game, they're pretty darn good. Now, just for the sake of completeness, Okta features also include provisioning, single sign-on, Active Directory, and LDAP integration, the centralized deprovisioning of users, multi-factor authentication, mobile identity management, and flexible policies for organization security and control. It does a lot. As a software engineer, you should at least be a little familiar with all of those methods of authenticating or authorizing a user to perform an action. And if you're in information security or in an IT department specifically, then those features may resonate with you on a more personal level. Like, hey, this could make my job easier or my company more secure. So all of those functions are brought together through a network of pre-integrated applications called the Okta Integration Network. The OIN provides integration options enabling SSO login for every app your users need to access during their workday. To translate that into English, because you access a ton of different applications throughout your day, especially at work, Okta's trying to simplify that process so you can log in once from your device and just use the apps that you need to use without logging into them individually with like 20 different passwords. So if you switch to another device in the middle of the day, Think back to that Slack example I used earlier, going from Slack on your laptop to Slack on your phone, then that experience of using the app isn't interrupted just because you context switched to a different device during your lunch or bathroom break or something. That'd be dumb to have to re-log into Slack and all your other apps all day long constantly. So that's what Okta's trying to do. Now, I think we're on the same page as to like what Okta is. So what happened to them? It would really suck if a company that focused on information security and data and credential and access management were to be hacked, right? I mean, like your usernames, passwords, login credentials, and all of that would probably be at risk. Oh man, guess what just happened? But it's not quite as bad as you may think. Okta has officially confirmed the breach after a week or two of choosing not even to acknowledge or confirm it. We know that it was breached, though, even before the confirmation because a confidential email was allegedly sent by Okta to its quote-unquote security contacts. The email noted that after investigating suspicious activity it had been alerted to earlier in December, Okta had concluded that someone copied its GitHub code repositories. On a related note, I sure hope nobody was checking in usernames or passwords for internal Okta systems into their code base. If they did, shame on them. Those passwords all need to be rotated immediately, and the person who checked in the code needs to be beaten or given an introductory course on how to use source control appropriately. Just kidding. If my sarcasm wasn't clear, that was a joke. I only beat people up recreationally, not professionally, and my point is that anybody touching version control should know better than to check in passwords. If not, they fail to understand what version control is doing, and that passwords are secrets. Therefore, they should not touch version control. According to Okta, no customer data was breached, no unauthorized access to its services was detected, and there were no code check-ins or code commits to the code base where an intruder may have introduced malicious code. So everything seems just peachy for Okta, despite the fact that hackers have their source code. 
and thankfully this may not actually be a problem for Okta customers. If Okta, being a security-minded company, did actually follow best practices, then they could even post their source code publicly, and that would be okay from a security standpoint. Maybe not a business standpoint, but that's not what we're talking about here. In fact, I would go a step further and say that being publicly available is the reason why a lot of open source encryption libraries are so secure. When you have a million eyeballs looking at code trying to exploit it, it gets quite good at resisting attacks. People talk about the weaknesses in the algorithms and the implementations, and then they share fixes with one another, and then the code gets stronger. If you compare that to keeping source code private, where you only have the eyes of a subset of the company looking at the code and maybe nobody trying to exploit it, then that kind of code gets really soft and is easy to break into the moment the product gets released to the public. Someone really, really smart and really, really good is going to reverse engineer it and break in. And they don't have to share how they did that with you, so you may not even know your company is breached or vulnerable to attack. And that's something you can avoid, so let's talk about how. If you're not aware, mathematics is the underlying foundation of digital security. The algorithms that we use to secure communications on the internet and in our data centers are based on complicated math. I'm going to throw out some terms here, we're not going to dive into them, but I'm going to use them to illustrate a point. Term one is block cipher. This is a deterministic algorithm to encrypt data. Term two is Diffie-Hellman key exchange. This is how you exchange a public key pair to generate a key for a symmetric cipher. And term three is elliptic curve cryptography. This is an approach to public key cryptography. Those specific three terms don't really matter in and of themselves. I could go on and on and on, but the point I'm trying to make is that fundamentally, these are just math proofs. Block cipher is math. Key exchanges are math. Cryptography is math. And none of it is actually software engineering. Software engineering is taking those math principles and turning them into code so that they do something for us. And that is the part where it always goes sideways. The pure math behind the ciphers is either unbreakable or we know exactly how much computing power it would take to break the cipher, whether we use a classic or a quantum computer. So it's a known level of security in its purest form. When we take these algorithms and write them in software, that's when we introduce opportunities to exploit them or to break them. So here's an example. Let's talk about some malware. Malware is malicious software intended to be intrusive and steal data, cause damage, or do other nefarious things to the recipient. In particular, there's one that I want to focus on called WannaCry. This was a global issue back in 2017 where users' PCs would get infected and users would get locked out unless they paid some hacker group, like an anonymous Bitcoin wallet, in Bitcoin to get it unlocked. It caused tremendous damage worldwide, but that's not really the part I want to focus on either. just want to get you to this point so we know what we're going to be talking about. So I want to drill down like a depth first search here and get right to the exploit. So how did WannaCry infect a computer to begin with? And that was done through the Eternal Blue exploit. So this is all now very well known, but this exploit was created by the United States NSA, or the National Security Agency, about five years before the WannaCry malware ever appeared. The NSA only informed Microsoft about it because their code was stolen by a hacker group who used it to create WannaCry. So do you see what happened there? So the NSA was trying to break into Microsoft code, into, into their protocols, so that, probably so that they could see things on networks they weren't supposed to see. 
That's what the NSA does, kind of. So one of their one of the aspects of espionage that they focus on. So the NSA successfully exploited Microsoft code, and they kept that a secret for five years. And that secret exploit is Eternal Blue. A hacker group then broke into the NSA and stole that exploit for themselves. And they repurposed it so that it would lock a user's PC and make the user have to pay a certain Bitcoin wallet in order to get their PC unlocked. And that is WannaCry. So WannaCry is like a repurposed Eternal Blue exploit that was developed by the NSA. So the NSA is responsible for creating this, this exploit and keeping it a secret and not telling Microsoft, hey, guess what? You've got a vulnerability in your code because the NSA was using it. Isn't espionage a pain? But anyways, Eternal Blue took advantage of a bug in Microsoft's implementation of the server message block or SMB protocol. The SMB protocol lets systems share access to files and printers across different endpoints on a network. It was developed in 1982 by Barry Figenbaum at IBM. So you can see how the stuff goes way back. A protocol from 1982 is finally exploited in 2017, not because the protocol itself has a flaw, but because of the way Microsoft chose to write their software to communicate over that protocol. Remember, the protocol is all of that mathematical foundation that we talked about earlier, but that protocol could get exploited because of the way Microsoft chose to implement it or write their software to communicate over that protocol. SMB is still around, but the Eternal Blue exploit has been patched, so nobody can take advantage of that exploit anymore, at least on patched versions of code that would have been exploitable before. And that's how we know the protocol itself wasn't at fault, because it could be patched. If it couldn't be fixed or patched with software, then the protocol itself would have been ditched for a different protocol. But SMB is still around. So now let's drill down even one layer deeper. So the SMB protocol is still around, but how did the Eternal Blue exploit work to begin with? Well, you start by sending a specially crafted packet of data across the protocol. When the receiving system gets those packets, it's going to cause that endpoint to start executing arbitrary code. What that means is you can make the remote system on the same network do whatever you want them to by filling that packet of data with things that you know you're going to execute on the target system. That's how it spreads. This type of malware is called a worm, and it can infect any system on the same network that goes unpatched. So you, an innocent user, would, for example, open a PDF document or something else that has the worm inside, and then the worm starts to spread on your network by sending these specially crafted packets of data across that protocol to remote systems. The, those remote systems would start executing the code inside of those packets of data, become infected, rinse and repeat. It's simple as that, game over. That's why you should be careful when you open documents that come from the internet. At least scan them before you open them, and that process actually happens without your direct involvement a lot of the times these days. So you're just protected by default, which is good. Now, I went through all of this, you know, drilling down through the different layers to get to the, the packet crafting itself, just to make the point that the protocol and the math are solid. It's the way that we choose to write our software, which is what makes it secure or exploitable. So having a lot of people trying to break your code and tell you where it's broke is a really good thing. And that's why I favor open source security solutions much higher than private companies. It's absolutely no contest between the security of those two methods of writing software. 
I think it's important at this point in time to also plug best practices and software development here. So you should be able to tell that a lot is resting on the secure implementation of your code. You, if you're the software engineer, should be writing secure code. And that's why I'm such a fan of DevOps and CICD pipelines. Those things let you do a thing to your code called shifting left. And that means your ability to secure your code gets shifted left so it's earlier on in the software development lifecycle just by the fact that you're using a pipeline which does security scanning on your code. So you can scan your code before it ever gets merged into the mainline and you can detect security flaws. In this case, Eternal Blue, if you happen to accidentally include an unpatched dependency in your code, would be discovered before you release your software. Eternal Blue is in the Common Vulnerabilities and Exposure Catalog under the name CVE-2017-0144. So you never have to release code that's vulnerable to that exploit ever again. You can scan your code, fix the issue, and then merge your code in, build it, and release, and you're done. Easy as that. So taking this full circle then back to Okta, how could they ensure that the leak of their source code is not a risk for their company from a security standpoint? Well, the first thing would be that their source code is decoupled from their data. Think of source code like a verb. It does things with data. The second step is private keys are stored in secure vaults and decoupled from the software. So you've got the keys to your kingdom somewhere isolated and the verb that would like transport things around isolated from your keys. And the third thing is user data. That needs to be locked away and stored in its own secure database. So the user data is secure, the verb, the way that you, you move things around is secure, and your keys of encrypting and protecting things are secure as well. And the code would bring all these things together, but individually, if any one of these things get, gets breached, it's not gonna really do much for the hackers. User data could be stolen, but it's inaccessible without the keys. The keys could be stolen, but they can't do anything without the user data. The software could be stolen, but it's no use because you don't have any content associated with it. It's just, it's just a verb. It transmits things to and from locations. So if you've isolated three, these three distinct things from one another, then the security risk to your company is relatively low if any one of them were to get breached. So let's take this out of the software engineering world if you didn't understand quite the source code, private keys, user data trilogy I outlined there. And let's use an example as if like you're shipping a package from Amazon. You personally wouldn't care if there was a malicious individual in the world who found out that, oh my goodness, Amazon is sending a package somewhere in the world today. That's not really useful information. You probably also wouldn't care if that same malicious individual found out that Amazon sends packages by UPS, FedEx, and DHL. Amazon also uses trucks and aircraft to send packages. And none of that is useful information for this malicious individual because it's all just generic, right? It doesn't tell them anything specific that they can use to like intercept packages with. Just that there's packages and they're using a lot of different mechanisms to get them from their warehouses to consumers. And so... You would care, though, if a malicious individual were to find out that you were getting a package today, or if they knew the contents of that package, or if they had some way of intercepting that package and opening it, right? Like, those are all the things that you as a user are going to care about. Those things are not what got stolen from Okta. The only thing that got stolen in the software breach are the generic transportation mechanisms. So malicious individuals now know that Okta uses a certain way of communication, 
but they don't have any of the data that's on that communication mechanism, right? It's not very useful for them. So I hope that analogy helps you to understand a little bit more about the risk associated with this, this Okta breach. Now it's not amazing news, right? Like that's still useful information for a malicious person, especially if they break in again and are able to intercept user data or the, the keys that are used to encrypt data, all assuming that Okta follows some of the best software engineering practices that there are. But at this moment in time, the risk for you as a user, if you utilize Okta for anything, is very low. So the things I outlined in this episode is, as far as like risk to Okta and you as a user, if you use it, um, they've all been confirmed by Okta. So I hope they're telling us all the truth here. We're not going to find out in a month that, oh, whoops, we forgot to disclose that user data was actually acquired as part of the breach as well. So I guess uh, this thing is still unfolding. We're going to learn more as time goes on. This is not the first time Okta has been breached. They've actually been breached a couple of times over the past year. So this isn't like urgent breaking news or anything, but it's just another instance in a long string of attacks on Okta, which of course a security company like Okta is going to be open to constant attack all the time because the data that they have is very sensitive. So I understand the hacker's desire to break into Okta, but I think that's probably enough on the subject for now. This should give you some ideas on how to gauge security risk, protect yourself, and maybe learn a little bit more about how software exploits actually work. So on that note, thank you for listening. Uh, I hope you will give me a rating on Apple Podcasts. I'd really appreciate it if you would. And please follow me on Getting Into It with Grant on LinkedIn or connect with me directly. Either of those would be wonderful to see from y'all. Happy New Year, and I will see you again next time. I'm not